Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we have had a lot of fun this year. I've had a lot of fun, at least, covering scientific rivalries. We've talked about Horace Wells and the Gas War and, of course, Tesla and Edison and the War of the Currents. That was one that was really popular because it was much anticipated and requested beforehand. It stirred up a little rivalry on our Facebook page. Even. It did. <laughs> Tesla has got a lot of strong support he behind does. it. Yeah, I was about to say the, the rivalry's out there, but yeah, Tesla's definitely kind of a favorite these days, I would say. So those episodes and the Mary Anning Princess of Paleontology episode that we did earlier this year got listeners clamoring for a podcast on another scientific war, one about two 19th century paleontologists, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh. Now, Cope and Marsh duped it out over America's fossil deposits during a time when the field of paleontology was still pretty new. Their race to find fossils, name the species that they belong to, and publish their findings about all of this came to be known by many names, including the Great Dinosaur Feud, the Dinosaur Rush, and the Bone Wars. Our title today. Uh, and they really made an impact, too. Prior to their work, there were only nine known species of North American dinosaurs. And these two men's efforts led to the classification of 136 new species. But Cope and Marsh's feud also resulted in a lot more than just the advancement of their field. It was kind of an embarrassment, too. It was a pretty dark time in a lot of ways. It ended up damaging both of their reputations and maybe even hindered scientific progress in some respects. Yeah, so much so that it's interesting. Their feud has been regarded, quote, as a kind of scientific indiscretion, says James Pennock in an article in American Heritage. So we're going to kind of explore that a little bit. But In two parts. Yes, we are in two parts. But to understand why these guys came to be at such odds, we first need to discuss a little bit about their backgrounds and how they came to be in their field in the first place, because they both took very different paths to end up basically in the same competition. So we'll start with Marsh. He's the elder of the two. Othniel Charles Marsh was born October 29th, 1831 in Lockport, New York. His father was very poor. He was a farmer. And even though Marsh showed a lot of interest in science from a young age, his father only intended him to take over the family farm someday. But fortunately for Marsh, he had a very influential uncle. His his mother, who had died when he was only three years old, was the sister of the banker, philanthropist, George Peabody. A much beloved sister. Yes. Luckily. Luckily. So, uh, of course, Peabody had one of the largest personal fortunes in the world, according to Penick's article. And it was a good person to, to have, especially if um, if Marsh's father was kind of struggling with his with his work. So around age 21, Marsh inherited some money from his uncle that had been meant for his mother's dowry. And he used this money to attend prep school at Phillips Academy. And of course, at 21, he was much older. Older than the other kids there. I mean, so, you think that Peabody could have advanced him the money for the education a little, a little earlier. further ahead of time? <laughs> yeah, you would hope so. But 
that did, that wasn't the case. That didn't happen. So according to an article by Tom Huntington in American History, his peers at prep school gave him nicknames like Daddy and Captain, <laughs> which you would think would just be mortifying. But he didn't seem to care, or if he did, he didn't let it stop him. He graduated as valedictorian and then convinced his uncle to pay to send him to Yale College, where he earned an undergraduate degree in 1860. He then went on to earn a master's degree from Yale Sheffield School of Science a couple years later. And after that, he spent a little bit of time studying in Europe and convinced Uncle Peabody to donate some more money, this time to Yale for a Museum of Natural Sciences. And it was kind of a hard sell because Peabody preferred Harvard. He would have preferred to have given his money to Harvard. But Marsh did get his way in the end, and he was appointed to run the museum as curator and became a professor of paleontology at Yale. So if your uncle does pony up the money, it's a good, You're a shoe good in way to position. get the job. Yep. Um, ultimately, though, he was the first professor of paleontology in North America, according to Huntington's article. So uh, a big a big step in his career. So moving on to Cope, unlike Marsh, Edward Drinker Cope came from a wealthy Quaker family. So definitely a bit of a brighter start in life. He was born July 28th, 1840 in Philadelphia. So nine years after Marsh. And he also showed a really early interest in science. He actually recorded his impressions of the fossils of an extinct marine reptile called Ichthyosaurus, which I think we talked about a little bit in the Marianning episode. He recorded his impressions of this when he was only six years old. So he was like you, Dublina, playing fossil hunter. Uh, Yeah, I think he was probably a little more on top of it than I was. But when he was 18, he also published a scientific paper on salamanders. And another thing that set Cope apart from Marsh, though, is that he didn't get a lot in the way of a formal education, which is kind of surprising considering he was so into science at an early age. He studied for about a year at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, spent some time studying the herpetology collections of the Smithsonian, and he worked as a researcher at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, but definitely didn't take that sort of traditional academic path that Marsh took. He did take a little tour through Europe eventually, though, to further his education, to to keep Cope from becoming involved in the Civil War. His father sent him abroad to study natural history in 1863, and he ended up for a time at Berlin University in Germany, and uh, coincidentally, Marsh was there at the same time, and the two guys did become acquainted, and even though it seems really unbelievable later, they were actually friendly with each other, and they continued their friendship stateside you know, after they returned home, even though their lives did take somewhat different paths. Yeah, Marsh, of course, came back, and he had this nice cush position at Yale to come into, and Cope came back to marry his cousin, Annie Pern, and he became a professor of zoology and botany at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. That position, however, was pretty short-lived. Cope left it in 1867 to go study a big deposit of dinosaur fossils found in New Jersey. So just a little background on the study of dinosaurs up to this point. According to Huntington's article, a British scientist named Richard Owen had coined the term dinosaur in 1841, but he had described them as these, quote, low-slung, lizard-like creatures. Joseph Leidy's study of the first U.S. dinosaur find in Haddonfield, New Jersey in 1858 totally changed this perception. Leidy worked with the bones of a hadrosaurus and showed that it would have walked erect on two legs instead of on all fours like a lizard, like most people thought. 
And that first hadrosaurus, which Lighty helped reconstruct, became the first complete dinosaur skeleton to be displayed for the public, according to PBS.org. Well, and Lighty had a, a connection to one of these guys, too, didn't he? He did. He had been Cope's anatomy professor at the University of Pennsylvania and was also his mentor at the Academy of Natural Sciences. So probably someone that Cope looked up to and learned from. Yeah, and if, you're, if you're only going to do one year at, at Penn, it was good he met this guy. But um, ultimately, Cope did go to New Jersey, where this fossil quarry was, and he participated in several excavations there. So at this point, as we mentioned, Cope and Marsh were still friendly with each other, enough so that in 1867, Cope even named an amphibian fossil, Petonius Marshi, after Marsh. I mean, that's a pretty nice thing to do for your your fellow scientist, I would say. Um, He also spent a week or so in 1868 showing Marsh around the fossil quarry in New Jersey where he was working, pointing out his various collection sites, really uh, being open about his work with Marsh, something important to to remember later on. Um, That year, too, Marsh wasn't just going to take this gift of a dinosaur name and, and let it go. He returned the name in compliment, and according to PBS Org, gave a, quote, new and gigantic serpent from the tertiary of New Jersey, the name Mosasaurus copianus. Uh, that gesture didn't count for a whole lot in the long run, but still, it's a gesture. Yeah, so just to give you a little background of why it might not have been as sweet a gesture as it seemed, Cope later found out that Marsh had gone behind his back and made a deal with the New Jersey quarry owner that ensured that all of the fossils that were found there would go directly to Marsh first. So basically cutting Cope out of the loop, cut him out of the process. So Cope is taking him around this place, showing off what he's working on, giving them the tour. Yeah, supposedly, I guess, being totally open about it, not assuming that Marsh is going to backstab him, but that's exactly what happens. So Cope was kind of hoodwinked by this. In the same year, in 1868, something else happened in their relationship, in Cope and Marsh's relationship. Cope was in a big hurry to publish his findings on a new species of plesiosaur, the fossilized bones of which had been shipped to him by an army surgeon from Kansas. And this is how they received their their fossils sometimes. This reminded me a little bit of the Mary Anning episode, where, of course, the the earlier situation we were describing of Cope going to the dig side and, and looking him Self sounds more like right. what you'd expect, but mm-hmm. just having bone shipped to you from from somebody else. Yeah, and we talk about we'll talk about the bone collectors and so forth a little more in part two of this, but this sort of introduces that idea. But anyway, Cope he got these bones. He he called this previously unknown plesiosaur Elasmosaurus. Unfortunately, though, when Cope was reconstructing the Elasmosaurus skeleton, he made a pretty major error. He reversed all of the vertebrae and put its head on its tail instead of on the end of its neck. It's pretty bad. And uh, guess who noticed? (laughs) Marsh paid a visit to the Academy of Natural Sciences to check out Cope's work. And, of course, he did not hesitate to point out this error. And he's even said to have been the first person to point it out to Cope. Uh, Cope called in Joseph Leedy to take another look and offer up a second opinion. He confirmed the mistake. And actually, upon looking at the skeleton, Leedy removed the head and placed on uh, reversed it with what Cope had originally thought was the tail. So pretty pretty bad. Yeah, and Lighty also discussed this error at the next meeting of the Academy of Natural Sciences. So 
you can imagine it's just like embarrassment on top of embarrassment. First, he's embarrassed. Yes, he's embarrassed in front of his colleague. Then he's embarrassed in front of his mentor. And And then then at the Academy of Natural Sciences. In front of this entire meeting of scientists. And of course, also, it's in publication, as we mentioned before. It's already out there in the Journal of the American Philosophical Society. They had already published his findings, including a drawing of this incorrect restoration. So Cope frantically starts to try to buy back every copy of the publication that he could find. But this incident, combined with Marsh's shady dealings regarding the New Jersey quarry, really seemed to have kicked off the feud between the two, or at least started the rift and bad feelings between them. But if you you really look at which of these incidents had more to do with the bad feelings between them, it really depends on which one of them that you asked. I mean, Cope would probably say it had more to do with what happened in New Jersey. Fossil issue. Yes. Yeah. And Marsh would say that he was just embarrassed and mad that he had pointed out his mistake. Yeah. Well, Marsh even later wrote of the incident and uh, said that it was Cope's, quote, wounded vanity that had received a shock from which it never recovered. And he has since been my bitter enemy. So, yeah, that's Marsh saying, oh, Cope just couldn't handle being wrong, essentially. Uh, he, he also later admitted that while he initially did return his copy of the publication to Cope, as Cope had requested, trying to hoard all these incorrect copies, um, he, uh, Marsh, later sought out and bought two additional copies, which he did hang on to, uh, as if he wanted to have them as some kind of ammunition. Um, seems like something that your buddy wouldn't do. <laughs> no, only your most bitter enemy would do that, or at least you would hope. But this is a great example of how Cope's big rush to get things published sometimes resulted in him making errors. But of course, Marsh, although he was said to be very meticulous, wasn't immune to this either. He he did make his share of mistakes. Just one example, he once put a Camerosaurus skull on the skeleton of an Apatosaurus, which, according to an article by Rene Clary, James Wandersee, and Amy Carpinelli in Science Scope, was, quote, one of the longest-lasting mistakes of paleontology. And we're going to discuss at least one of his other major errors later on, too, but that's just to give you one example. And so, of course, in some ways, you know, we've we've been talking about this rush that both of the men were were constantly under. These errors were a direct result of competition between them because not only were they trying to get their discoveries out there quickly because the naming rights were were given to whoever published a find first, they were trying specifically to beat each other to the punch. I mean, that's not going to make great meticulous work in the end, most likely. Right. The feud between Cope and Marsh really began in earnest in the 1870s when they both headed west to hunt for fossils. Marsh's first expedition was in 1870, and it was sponsored by Yale, and he had this whole entourage with him, including about a dozen Yale students and even an army escort that they acquired once they'd made it to what's now the Midwest. They explored Kansas, Wyoming, and Utah, and according to hunting article, at one point they even had Buffalo Bill Cody as their guide. But by the time they got back to Yale after that first trip, they had 36 boxes of specimens, including bone fragments from a pterodactyl wing, when no pterodactyl had been discovered before. And Marsh estimated that this giant flying reptile would have had a wingspan of 20 feet. So Cope and Marsh, when they really started to butt heads, was around 1872, when Cope started exploring Wyoming territory looking for fossils there. 
Huntington writes that Marsh was really angry about this because he considered the area his turf. I guess because he'd already hunted for fossils little, around there. A taste of his own medicine yeah. there, I have to say. Uh, but this ultimately kicked off a really nasty sort of letter-writing campaign between the two. It reminds me of the pamphlet wars we sometimes discuss on yep. the podcast. Uh, but their war tactics were not just limited to words either. They, they employed everything from espionage to theft in their battle to be known as the best in the field. And I think to a certain extent to make sure the other guy was... It was number two, too, or, or even lower. Right. So we're going to be discussing examples of, of some of these tactics in the next episode, as, as well as what happens when Cope and Marsh finally take their fight to what turned out to be the ultimate battleground for them. And it was not some fossil ground. It was Washington, D.C. Yeah, so lots of interesting things to cover in part two, including I think we'll talk a little bit more just about their personalities, too, and their personal lives, because I think it gives some interesting insight insight as to maybe some more of the root of the animosity. It wasn't necessarily all about dinosaur bones. Not all about it. No. But a lot. A lot. Yes, that's for sure. All right. Well, before we sign off for today, we do have a couple of pieces of listener mail. One is an email from listener Bill, and I just wanted to read this. It's just a couple sentences, but I wanted to read it because he brings up Indian territory. Oh, your favorite place. My favorite place. <laughs> he says, an old friend used to talk about his dad's birth certificate stating Oklahoma Indian territory as his birthplace. He was born in a small town just north of the Red River on April 1st, 1906. And in parentheses, he put no kidding. So that's that pretty cool. That? I bet you were, I bet you wish you were born there, but you'd have to be a lot older when <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I, I that would work out. I was kind of hoping um, Cope and Marsh would head out Indian Territory way to do some fossil finding, but I guess not quite. They're in the range. They are. They're in the area. But I have another message from a listener, this time a Facebook message, that talks about a place where Cope and Marsh definitely did not do any exploring, <laughs> at least not that I know of anyway. Colby sent us a note on Facebook and wanted to talk about the Gertrude Bell episode. And he had uh, kind of an interesting point to make that I thought was worth sharing, a critique of the podcast, actually. He said, I love your podcast. As a huge history geek, I think I've listened to almost every one. I know your podcasts aren't meant to be the super definitive statements on subjects, but the Gertrude Bell one bothered me a bit. The end painted a really rosy picture on the formation of Iraq. To be overly PC, it was really a Western and paternalistic view on the whole thing. I can't believe I said something like that, LOL, is what he said in parentheses. <laughs> the British killed thousands, putting down regional, ethnic, and tribal rebellions at this time in Mesopotamia. They stray villages and farms from the air and use poison gas. I believe the only Western power to do so after World War One. So an interesting point to make. I mean, I thought that we did sort of talk about how A.T. Wilson tried to squash down the Arab rebellions uh, in part two of that podcast, but definitely wasn't a big mention. And so it's worth bringing up again. That it's a good reminder, I guess, that this wasn't all just happy, happy. The Arabs were glad to go along with having the British rule them for this time. And 
Uh, so thank you, Colby, for writing in. I mean, we definitely can't cover every aspect of every episode as much in depth as we would like to. So, or the or the implications of what always happens later in the century, and this is a clear example of, of you could you could keep going up until the modern day. But, oh, so true. Um, yeah, it's always it's always a good reminder from listeners to to hear what you wish we talk about next time. <laughs> yeah, and we appreciate that when people write in. Uh, with critiques and point out things, and especially when they do so in such a nice way. Berlin and LOL. Yeah, yeah that's great. Cool. So thanks again, Colby. Thanks everyone who writes into us. If you'd like to send us a comment on a podcast or maybe even just an idea suggestion for a future podcast, you can find us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And as you bide your time until this part two of Bone Wars comes out, we do have a lot of paleontology articles, don't we? We do. And you can find them by searching on our homepage at www.houseofworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.